Doopy do 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 doopy do 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 morning. Da, 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 da. I don't know why it's in my head. It's just bouncing around. There's a lot of room to work with. Hello, Prim. Do you want to see who's here? Ah. Hello. 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 <laughs> Primrose, are you having a nice cuddle with uh, with Grandy there? Is Grandad giving you a nice cuddle? You're not shy. Oh, come. Peppa, are you watching Peppa? Um, he's just bouncing. Do you know who's not here? Who's not here? Look on the screen, Prim. Who, who's not here? Hugh's here. Grandad and Prim are here. Steve's here. Who's missing? Who's missing? Rory. Where's Rory? Yes. He's always late, isn't he? Yeah. Why is he always late, do you think? I think he's working. Do you think he's working or doing toilet? He's <laughs> on the toilet. I'll ask him when he. I'll ask him when he gets there. Shall I? Should we censor him? What should we do? What What can't he have? Because he's been naughty. What should we stop him having? Cheese strings. No, stop having chocolate. No chocolate. No good thinking. Yeah. No chocolate for Rory then. Actually, do you know what would really hurt him, Primrose? No biscuits. Yeah. That seems right, doesn't it? Good. Yes. I'll see you when you get back from your. And I'll pick you up from nursery. Let's swimming. <gasps> He's here. Primrose what? says no chocolate, no biscuits because you're late. I'm very sorry, Primrose. I'm, I'm sorry. very sorry. It's a hollow, hollow apology, isn't it, Prim? <laughs> there's any help? I've got, I've got a coffee. Coffee. They should be confiscating that, that then. That's that makes it okay. It makes it okay. That's why. That's why I'm late. You're disgusted, I, are you? Can I? I stop read, for a read coffee. Be, reading between the lines, Prim, are you disgusted with Rory's behaviour? Yeah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to go now. You've got to go and get shoes, and I've got to talk, rub, uh, work, work on this pro podcast. Yeah? Nanny wants you. Say bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Primrose. Bye, Primrose. Bye. Primrose. bye. Go, go with Nanny now. Quickly go with Nanny. Close my door. Watch your fingers. Don't trap your fingers in it. Good girl. Right. Where, where uh. were you, Rory? Where were you? Uh, I was dropping doing the nursery run, the preschool yeah. run, and then I stopped for coffee, and then we've got a window man round. So I you stopped for coffee. Stopped for coffee. Well, I didn't stop for coffee. I stopped to pick up a coffee on the way back. <laughs> but I'm ready to be devastatingly efficient now. Hugh, oh, I'm not surprised I mean... that you've had your hair cut. If anyone in the country was going to have their, their hair cut first in on Monday morning, it was you. <laughs> I, th I think you'll find that it's of excellent length. Did you like queue up? No. Um, I have a guy. And he knew, he knew that Hugh Ferris needed. <laughs> in fact, he, I didn't even book an appointment. He just came around unannounced. <laughs> he just, he penciled Hugh in straight away for 9am first day the haircuts were available. Straight, straight out into the garden. I have walked past several barbers today. And what has surprised me, it's now Tuesday morning. What has surprised me is that there's a lot of old men, like, like genuinely old men, not like chinch old men, but like actually old men. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Yeah, like you're yeah, you're, you're 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 young old. You're not old old, but like old uh, okay. old men. Yeah, like a top 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 player. But like, yeah. <laughs> but like men in their like seventies and eighties, and like your hair doesn't grow very fast when you're in your seventies and eighties, and also a lot of them are kind of bald on top anyway. And you sort of yeah, but I think they get because they're so used to having their hair cut that when they haven't been able to have it, they felt really conscious of it. I found that at work. Some of the older guys at work with their hair getting longer. It, it's made a big difference to them. They don't feel as comfortable. Even my mum, my mum's been banning on about um, having having booked an appointment for April the 13th for like two, she booked it like two months ago. Hmm. My mum's got basically the same hair as the Queen. And, she, but you can't tell the difference, you can't tell it's not been cut for a year because it doesn't, 
she's nearly 80. Like, yeah, but you don't tell her grow. that, do you? You don't tell her that. When no, I did. I said, like, it looks great or it doesn't look any different than it was before. It just always, like, she's had the same hair. I think she would have not had her haircut for about 25 years and it would look <laughs> exactly the same. I'm, I'm relieved you haven't brought me into this, bearing in mind I am ultimately the, the expert on old man hair, bearing in mind mine is the most thinning of the group. Have you, so, had, your, have you had your hair cut since Monday? No. Katie no. did mine a couple of weeks ago, so I'm, I'm good for a while. I don't have to be one of those people. I was like you, I was staggered to see people queuing up. And the most incredible was people my age with their children queuing up outside what looked a fairly grotty barbers. You think, well, a rare day together. With the sun shining, <laughs> the chi- the kids are off school. You've clearly got a free day. How have you spent it? Stood in the street outside a barbershop in Withington. Do you want to name check this this grotty barber, Steve? Is that you know, that's, that's, just going to stop it's, there? Are it's, you? it's in the other direction to uh, the direction that I would head. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's the one on the corner in Withington because we drove past that as well. And you're just thinking, you just think where uh, in, in in Withington and particularly Didsbury, where where two of us live, there are more barbers than human males. So there shouldn't what, be any what, queuing necessary. What characterises it being? It's like blood on the windows or something. How? What? What makes it grotty? <laughs> it's, called, it's called Sweeney Todd's. <laughs> you can do the pickup off your own joke for once if you want to. Well, that might work. This is Set Me Smelly, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> Rory Smith. When he was evicted from his hole in the ground, he had to go and live in a lake. And Andy Hinchcliffe. It's not pining, it's passed on. The parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to see its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it'd be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. That's the best we've ever done, I think, or you've ever done. I think I've had a hernia doing it. Um, the food is cottage pie. And the reason I'm asking this is because um, I uh, cooked a cottage pie last week. I didn't quite realise how big the cottage pie was, so we have been eating cottage pie for a full week. Is it the size of a cottage? <laughs> it is the real size. Of how a big? How no? Really, how big? If you've been eating it for that long, that you must know you've made it too big. It'd it be needed pretty obvious, wouldn't it? Two large dishes. Two. Two large dishes, and it was ten servings. Uh, we had a night off for a bit of salmon. <laughs> God, so awful. Are you expecting a nuclear attack? Why would you make that much cottage pie? It's nonsense. <laughs> it was a mistake. We just thought batch cooking as lockdown came to an end was a sensible approach. But as it turns out, it was a very large batch. Are you, football... run, are you running a soup kitchen? What the <laughs> hell? Yeah, that's not batch cooking. That's just ridiculous. Uh, the football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, are we talking about a specific individual? Is it a gent? Is that what we're talking about? That's why, because yeah. you see, you you all had your, you know, you're, you're pinging around all the, you know, what the topics of conversation for this week. And I never really get involved in it because I'm not really that interested. But that seemed to be the gist, a gent. So I don't know, I don't know who it is we're talking about. Yes, we are. We're talking about a gent, plural, agents. Kevin De Bruyne oh. apparently doesn't need one. Erling Haaland very clearly has one. And collectively, Premier League clubs are spending £270 million a year on them. They are divisive figures, particularly because they would say the figures are all they really care about. But is there more than just a financial value that agents can add to a player's career? That is uh, to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. We start with what at this point of the pod is beginning to become uh, something of a recurring theme, an apology. It's from Buffalo Rich Reardon. Dear Lennon McCartney and the two blokes Pat Nevin is only pretending to like. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, (laughs) sorry, sorry, sorry. 
I humbly ask you for your forgiveness for getting Pelham von Donop's name so badly wrong. <laughs> oh. As a mark of my deep and sincere regret, I am willing, if necessary, to relinquish Buffalo status. And I'll also buy one of them ball shaver things too, if that'll help. That um, would help. <laughs> yeah, that could be your penance. Yes, that's much more important than the first one anyway. Um, I have learned three things from this escapade, says Rich. Number one, don't take the mickey out of old England internationals, even where they're dead. To their face is fine, obviously. Mm. Number two, Bedford Jezzard is a way better name anyway. And three, Hugh definitely can't be asked to fact check any emails until after he's read them out. The only slightly odd thing is that I recall ending my previous email by saying that Chinch may have fewer caps than Kieran Gibbs, but at least he doesn't sound like a character from Jeeves and Worcester. Jeeves and Worcester were created by celebrated novelist P.G. Woodhouse. The P in P.G. stands... Yeah. For Pelham. Pelham. Woodhouse mm. was named Pelham after his godfather, a former army captain, decent amateur cricketer, tennis player who took part in Wimbledon, FA Cup finalist with the Royal Engineers, and two-cap wonder, Mr. Pelham Van Donop. Best regards and apologies again. Pelham's new biggest fan, Rich Reardon, hopefully still a Buffalo, definitely still in Bootle. Um, now, Rich, this was actually something we talked about post-show last week in a section it would appear had more value than perhaps I thought, and it, uh, it was mentioned also on Twitter. Correct. Woodhouse, Pelham, related, not necessarily blood, but... Godfatherly to Pelham Van Donop. Von I, I always assumed the P in PG Woodhouse stood for Pete. What? And the G was Graham. Yeah, just Pete Graham Pete Woodhouse. Graham. Never going to be that, was it? But how Gary, we... Gary, Pete the, Gary Woodhouse. The more, import, the more important issue here is how, how, we haven't ever debuffaloed someone, have we? How how would we? Do we have to form a committee? There's a lot of is, this, is it something once you've bestowed Buffalo status, is that you can't then take it away, no matter how terribly they perform? It's like defrocking a priest. There's a lot of paperwork. Wrong with that. There's a lot of there's a lot of scandal. The I just I don't know if it's worth it for this trivial offence. That's Rich's okay. Rich's worst crime. There was expecting that Hugh would fact check mm. a long list of former England football. How much time does he think we have? I mean, he, in fact, if anything, he deserves to be stripped of Buffalo status for assuming that we're twiddling our thumbs in between yeah. shows. Mm. But to be fair, since lockdown, Lot Hughes' because work's dried yeah, up, yeah. So, so, yeah. so to an extent. So maybe. Maybe, maybe he was time. right off yeah, I'm looking to fill it, but not with that. Um, our old friend Tim Oscroft <laughs> has um, sent us a picture of a page from his 1980-81 edition of Rothmans that details all England internationals before Wikipedia had the temerity to ruin that. Uh, and he wanted us to know about the one-cap England international, Seagar Bastard. Um, Seagar was also a cricketer. He played for the, uh, for the MCC in Essex as well. Um, so like Pelham. How do you spell the Seagar? S-E-G-A-R. I was just cigar and bastard as in bastard. <laughs> I don't know how else you could spell it's that. It's not spelled yeah. any differently. It is just bastard. Yeah. It's not bastard. No. Yes? Well, he might have been, he might have pronounced it bastard. Yeah. You probably would do, wouldn't you? You wouldn't I mean, be like, yeah, my name's C I'm just Mr. Bastard. Is that, that back in the day when they, they just <laughs> assign surnames to what you were and what you did uh, as opposed to anything that your father well, is it, anyway. Hang on, is it not fits? So you know the the, the prefix fits on a surname? Yeah. Is illegitimate son of. Oh, really? Fitzwilliam. Yeah. Fitzwilliam is oh, illegitimate son of William. Gerald. And yeah, it's like Ger Gerald's been knocking about and, and William and Gerald need to keep well, it. Yeah, they really so they couldn't it, even they, they, they couldn't even go to those lengths. We're not gonna we're not gonna put Fitz, we'll just go for bastard. Right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Lay it all out there. That's a bit harsh <laughs> on the poor child, isn't it? Uh thank you, Tim, for sending that in. Next to Patrick Halliday, who has written from Vermont. Dear Max, Barry, Barney and Wilson, a reference none of us understand. Uh, first, for my own mental health, I'm not on any social media, so I've instead sent via email 
a photo taken on my run yesterday while listening to SPM 225 here in Burlington, Vermont, USA, with the sun setting over Lake Champlain, the Adirondack Mountains, and a soccer practice in the gloaming. Is it uh, not Adirondack? Adirondack, is it? Let's leave this in because I think it's one of those, there's several words in American (laughs) that British people can't say, the most famous of which is Andy Das's home state, which I think is Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. But Americans say Connecticut. I think it's Adirondack. Damn it. Leave it all in. (laughs) People like listening to us learn. Like William and Gerald. Uh, Like so many others, a hearty thank you for your constant (laughs) companionship. Especially, I I think I got over my mispronunciation with that. Especially over the past 13 or so months. While I listen to a couple of other podcasts, yours is the one I look forward to more than any. Keep up the good work. Regarding SPM 225, I feel like you might have missed an important aspect of morality in football. While I enjoyed your conversation about the responsibilities of fans and players, what about the responsibility of clubs themselves? In short, I kept waiting for you to mention Forest Green Rovers. It is enough to keep up with the Premier League, the Champions League, La Liga, the Bundesliga and so on that following the English League 2 and still having time for my family and, oh, my job just isn't possible. So the only club I really know much about at all in League 2 is Forest Green Rovers due to their conscious choice to make morality in the form of environmental activism central to their mission. I don't study the League 2 table, but I might take a glance to see how Rovers are doing, certainly pulling for them to finish above Mike Dean's Tranmere. He says incredibly dismissively. If nothing else, Forest Green feels <laughs> like the club that lefty Vermont would produce. It uh, led me to wonder why other clubs don't actively cultivate such fandom. I am a Liverpool supporter. I know that Liverpool has a long history as a city and club in leftist politics. Bill Shankly was a proud socialist and instilled that in the club. Today, though, FSG is mostly just an ever so slightly lesser money machine than Manchester City, more or less on a par with the other big six. Isn't there room for a club to really sell a moral identity as a way to distinguish itself and expand its fan base. Just a thought. And again, thanks for the continued excellent work. Uh, Be well. That's Patrick Halliday, Burlington, Vermont. And he tends to walk through the Adirondack Mountains. Just sack their manager, though, haven't they, Forest Green? So morality doesn't extend to uh, job security. I'm not sure those are two directly connected things. I I think you can support the environment whilst not necessarily kind of wanting to provide universal employment in perpetuity. Difficult times yeah. for the unemployed out there. I mm, think they Rory, it's, not, it's, not good, it's not It's not ideal to be looking for work right about now. I have been to Forest Green Rovers and I have I, met I've Dale there. Vince. I've worked there. You, you will have done change. I've met, have you met Dale Vince? Uh, no, but I had a lovely vegan burger. Yep, very nice. I football had... was awful. <laughs> Food, lovely. And I, I might actually tell a little story about this later on. It's just, it's just giving me my, my conscience a prick. Carry on. I ate a vegan burger in... Within eye shot, eye shot of Micah Richards yesterday, and he was appalled. Told me I was better than that. Not quite sure why, but he was really upset that I ate a vegetarian burger despite not being vegetarian. Uh, no, I met Dale Vince, and Dale Vince is a very nice man, very kind of uh, con- eco-conscious man. He runs is it Ecotricity is his thing, yep. and Forest Green Rovers is kind of it's a, there's a little bit. This sounds like a stupid parallel. It's a bit like Red Bull. So, like, Forest Green Rovers is, is a way of advertising his, his ecological beliefs, effectively. But I'm, I, I, I was there. Hang because... on. Red, Red Bull will give you wings. And Forest Green will Eco, give you wind. Yeah, that, that will give, yeah. You the, that, give you the propellers to go. Yeah, with. exactly. Yeah. The, but I met, I, met, I met Dale Vince. So I was sent down by the other Times, the, the London Times, to, to, for an interview with Gary Neville, who'd fallen in with Dale Vince in some way and was promoting like an electric sports car 
This was before, I think this was before like Monday Night Football and Gary, Gary Neville still was, was still searching around for his options of how to fill his post-playing career. And so like punditry was one option, being terrible at management was another. And I think he was toying with the idea of maybe being an electric race car driver, I don't know. <laughs> like real life scale extra. <laughs> <laughs> it was really strange. And all I remember of it is, is that Gary Neville took us to see a pylon of some sort in this car. It was very odd, like an electricity pylon. We went right. to a pylon. That was that was what happened. We just went to a pylon. <laughs> I was I was hoping that the story had a story. There isn't any more st- this or what? what? No, there there isn't there isn't any more story. Me and Gary Neville and Dale Vince got in an electric electric car. Now this is and, the start of a joke, isn't it? And, Me, Gary but, Neville, and Dale Vince got into an electric car. And this is, this and, is and, what's the punchline? Come on. The punchline is we drove to a pylon. That's it. <laughs> This is the real reason that Rory was late this morning, is that he was having this dream. It, w- it was either a story or like a slightly weird trip. I can't remember. One of the two. Uh, Chris Corkin has a new angle for us to consider on the morality conversation. Dear podcasters, I would also like to concur with all fellow listeners that have touched upon the podcast role in providing some sort of companionship and escape from lockdowns. Thank you. Upon listening to episode 225 on a customary dog walk, I arrived home as Chinch was describing his moral dilemma of Pat Nevin and the absence of a copy of his new book. Whilst listening to the end of the pod, I also tuned in to Burnley at home to Newcastle, for which Chinch was providing his excellent co-commentary. Given he was in both my earphones, and on my television, I was surprised that Chinch was able to let such an injustice go in time to describe the winner by Alain Saint-Maximin with possibly a skulking Nevin likely on the same gantry. This made me think of the moral dilemma that has been the debate in my group of football friends over food. Please appreciate this is nothing compared to the Qatar World Cup decisions and other club-related ethics. What is more meaningful to a player and supporters, a career with the club you support or leaving the club you support on your own terms to go and win something or win more. The Jack Grealish, Harry Kane conundrum, if you will. Personally, I would stay at Villa or Spurs, as this is more meaningful to somebody from the area and of which their family supports, especially at Spurs as they are competing for Champions League and trophies perennially without passing the finishing line. But the debate with my friends led to comments such as a Marcus Rashford or a Trent Alexander-Arnold should leave United or Liverpool to win more with Real Madrid or Barcelona. But that can't possibly right, be right or moral, even if Rashford would likely win more if he moved to Bayern, Barcelona or Madrid. I'd love to know your thoughts. That's from Chris Corkin. It's really interesting that. We, we should probably do a whole podcast on that, shouldn't we? Maybe we... we take that email as content and steal it for like next week <laughs> okay yeah See, I have I, thank very... we owe you one chris thanks thank, very much thanks chris <laughs> it, was, it was better than i expected i mean the contributions to a, a pod get a um an orange flag and the ideas get immediately upgraded to a red flag in my email system so i i misflagged you chris you're definitely what, a red <laughs> what what flag do you use if it if you feel as though it's a security threat I've run out of options, haven't I? I've got the purple unused, so maybe I'll just do that one. You've got a biohazard symbol that you can... <laughs> it just flashes constantly. Chris, uh... is, Chris has saved us an awful lot of trouble sending uh, WhatsApp messages that Chinch won't read. <laughs> and finally, from uh, David van der Heer, uh, Dear Amy, Jonah, Matteo and Glenn, which is the second uh, Superstore yeah, uh, mentioned like in two weeks. Can uh, we turn this into a Superstore podcast? <laughs> we can do if you like. Excellent recommendation from Rory and only Rory a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Long time listener, second time emailer, says David. I'm aware of how pretentious this might sound, but I like to think of myself as a football intellectual. I stan Raquel May. Me too. I shipped Rui Costa 
and Me Baptist Uta. <laughs> Me too. I've been to a St. Pauli match. I fantasise about visiting a third-tier Norwegian team who play their home matches looking out over a fjord. Just do Rory's job then. And of course, I read Rory's newsletter and listen to SPM. But I have to admit, I've never held a very high opinion of English football. The tough tackling, hard drinking, proper football men who only know 4-4-2 and kick it in the long grass somehow never appealed to me. Listening to SPM 224 felt like most of my prejudices were being confirmed. The sub-chinch 11 that you curated did not seem very good at all. I am a native Dutchman, so naturally I asked myself the question, how would a free-flowing 4-3-3 sub-chinch Oranje 11 do against these English long ball merchants? Surely we would be able to get a result. I was hell-bent on slotting in Ray Atavelt in midfield and Gerald, Gerald Seaborn <laughs> in the centre of attack just to get a reaction out of Andy, but it turns out neither of them was actually ever capped for Holland. I guess we had better talent available. So I took to Google. I automatically disqualified anyone playing before the 90s since I would not have seen them play, and then I came up with this. By the way, apologies for my pronunciation, particularly uh, when I was not sure about mountain ranges in Vermont earlier. I'm going to try my best. The goalkeeper, Stanley Menzo, famous for a howl of Ajax, which eventually led to him losing his spot to Edwin van der Sar. Right back, Theo Lucius, probably Theo Lucius, famous for being arrested smuggling illegal fireworks across the Belgian border during his active <laughs> career. He's made a good start here. <laughs> Centre-back, John de Wolf, famous for his mullet. Centre-back, Case van Vonderen, famous for being the most anonymous member of the Feyenoord UEFA Cup winning team. Left-back, Royston Drenthe, famous for driving a Renault Clio while at Malaga because he was done being pulled over by racist cops in Spain. Defensive midfield, George Berteng, famous for being a very decent midfielder. Central midfield, Martin Reusser, famous for being one of the lesser talents of the Ajax 90s crop. I also remember him being famous for scoring a, a goal for Ipswich that got them promoted via the playoffs. Uh, central midfield, Orlando Trustful, Famous for marrying mm. the showgirl from the Dutch Wheel of Fortune. Right attacking midfielder, Glenn Helder. Famous for some serious legal trouble. Uh, left attacking midfielder, Reggie Blinker. Famous for signing for two clubs at once. Uh, and centre forward, Arnold Brugink. Famous for being the strike partner, mm. Luke Nillis, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Matea Kesman and Jan Venegor of Hesselink. In all honesty, he says, this 11 was a disappointment. This would be a very tight match with their English sub-chinch colleagues. I think the only logical conclusion to all of this is that the true elite level of football starts at seven caps. Yes! Yes! Many have said it before, but it's been a very welcome distraction during this last year, so thank you. And kind regards from David. Correspondence of any kind, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And if you want to do any uh, international 11s of your own country... We could, have a, we could have a World Cup, a Detritus World Cup, couldn't we? And see who, actually who finishes bottom, not who wins it, who actually is the worst of the worst. Uh, now, you remember a few weeks ago... No, we no, 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 hang on, hang on. Oh, no, there's more. There's, there's a funny, there's a funny. It's not funny. It's just another terrible story. Um, there's a tangent my, coming. My first, the first ever game I went to, I think, at Elland Road, was Leeds against Arsenal. And Glenn Helder was playing for Arsenal. So Glenn Helder is a footnote in football history. But I remembered Len Helder possibly more clearly than any other player because I, I was closer to him than any other player. Just the ball at one point, we playing on the right wing. And we're in the, what, what is now, I think, the Lurpak stand at Allen Road, but was then called the family stand. And, uh, and he chased this terrible pass. It was 1995, so were, all the passes were awful. <laughs> and he chased this pass and it, he couldn't quite stop himself as he came off the pitch. So he had to hurdle the, the advertising hoardings and he ended running up kind of 15 or 20 steps into the stand because he was going so fast. Glenn Held was quick. He was not gifted. But I was sat on the row, on the end of the row, and Glenn Held just sort of came stittering past me. And it was, it was as a, like a kid, it was... How old were you? I'd have been about 12, I think. It was the first time I'd gone with my, with my mate to Ellen Road. And 
it was the most incredibly exciting thing to see this this actual footballer just sort of dart past you and then all these other people around you tell him that the exit was that way and if he, if he kept on going he'd... the um but yeah so I Glenn Helder occupies a, a curiously prominent place in my football footballing memory it's, it's, like, it's, it's like Arsenal's Forrest Gump isn't it he just carried he would have just ran out of the stadium wouldn't he, if the gates had been open Oh no, he 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 really didn't know how seemed to know how to stop himself. So he was in, I suppose he was on stu- in studs on. Do you, I was going to say, do you remember floor. the clink of his? Did he have the metal? Or did he have the rubber? Did you remember that? They, they was there would, was there sound? There was sound, but I think they were I think they were rubberized. Because if it had, had if it had had the uh, Des Walker three inch long metal studs on, there's no way you could have stayed <laughs> on your feet. It's like you're on ice. Seriously, there's no way he must have had the molded studs on. I think he was wearing feet. probably wearing sort of primitive moldies. Yes. Given that uh, Chinch was worried about that being too much of a tangent, he extended it. Oh, sorry, sorry. Unnecessarily. Oh, sorry. Uh, now, you'll remember a few weeks ago that we noted a hat-trick of subjects suggested by Rory. His achievement of providing three in a row was rightly celebrated at the time and must not be diluted in any way by the fact that the, after today's pod, we will be just one away from having a different hat-trick to hail. Because after a listener-suggested topic last week allowed me to kick back a little on these convoluted introductions, here's another from a man who likes to call Stephen Wyeth a friend and whom Stephen Wyeth likes to call an occasional school-run acquaintance. <laughs> this is an email from Simon Way. Uh, Dear Egon, Winston, Peter and Ray, which is excellent because when I was uh, pretending to be a Ghostbuster in the school playground, I was indeed Egon, always the third best. That film has not aged well, by the way, people. (laughs) That film has not aged well. Sorry, when I was pretending to be a Ghostbuster. Everybody, listen, everybody pretended to be. Again, you weren't, you weren't, you you were about, I bet you were about 12 or 13, weren't you? Two two things. 24. Two, two things I remember pretending to be in the playground at school, weirdly. Uh, the first was Go- Ghostbusters, and I was Egon, because, again, t- two, two more popular friends, so they, they got the first two picks. And um, that also translated to when we, uh, when we were pretending to be Bross, and I was Craig, the third one that nobody remembers. Pretending to be Bross. Even you Bross were Craig, didn't want to be Bross. Unbelievable. Oh. He is an unbelievable nerd, isn't he? Oh my God, what you, a clown. You got to be, cra- who's Craig in exactly. Ross? Exactly, because exactly. Of, all my friends got Matt and Luke, so I had to be Craig. How did you pretend to be Ross? What did you do? <laughs> Were you sort of singing When well, Will I Be Famous? He can't sing and he can't dance, so he was pretty golden. He probably sound, sounds like he could be in Bross. He's realised the mistake <laughs> he's made here. Mentioning Ghostbusters <laughs> is one thing. Mentioning impersonating Bross and then being Craig, never going to live that down. Is, I have one final question. Is it worse to have impersonated Bross in the playground and been forced to be Craig, who, who is so unknown that he's not even referencing the name of the band? <laughs> that he's, he, in fact, the name of the band deliberately excludes him because he was not a Bross. Is that worse than having been named as a substitute for a football team that only has 11 players? We will, we will let the audience decide. <laughs> Back to Simon's email, which started excellently with a reference to Ghostbusters. Football agents are an easy target, says Simon. It's pretty hard to find anyone in the game who has a good word to say about them, yet nearly every major transfer seems to involve quoted agents' fees that make your head swirl. Amongst the mind-boggling sums currently being quoted for a possible Erling Haaland transfer this summer are agents' fees of 40 million euros split between Mina Raiola and Haaland's father, Alfinger. Coming at a time when the entire global economy is under unprecedented strain, it seems that Benjamin Franklin was mistaken when he stated that nothing in life was certain other 
rather than death and taxes. Although in fairness, as Franklin died in 1790, I guess that agents' fees weren't quite such an issue then. Yet it seems that it doesn't have to be this way. We've learned that Kevin De Bruyne negotiated his reported £400,000 per week contract extension with Manchester City himself, with only his father and his lawyer at the other end of the phone in Belgium. Presumably, City found it far easier to find 400 k down the back of Sheikh Mansour's rather large sofa when they knew that they didn't have to find another few million for an agent as well. Amongst all the tabloid fodder scorn of football agents, I've never really heard an argument in favour of the role that they play or the value that they add. Given that one of your number needed to negotiate several high-value transfers every time Howard Kendall became his manager, <laughs> and that others amongst <laughs> you are increasingly frequently the centrepiece of high-value struggles between BT and the BBC, I wonder whether any of you were prepared to put up a defence of the value that a football ad agent adds. P.S. As Alfie Holland is back in the news, I think that I should confess that I've had a soft spot for him ever since he offered some City fans 20 pounds petrol money after meeting them on their way home from a 4-0 drubbing at Charlton. I presume that Chinch never did this as he was always saving that 20 pounds for his Chinese takeaway. Uh, that's from Simon Way. First of all, 20 pounds petrol money for a trip from round trip from Manchester to Charlton. It's insulting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after two contrasting stories of the involvement of agents or lack thereof, we thought it might be a good time to try and answer Simon's question on whether there is value other than the obvious kind that an agent can add. Mina Raiola's fundraising tour around Europe might be one way of doing it. While it would appear that Kevin De Bruyne has followed what we shall now call and really should have been calling for a long time now, the Andy Hinchcliffe example. So then agents, genuine value, a necessary evil, or as Joe Kinnear once said, dogs, worms, vermin. Chinch, why didn't you have an agent? Um, the first thing is probably, I have been thinking about this for once I've actually put some thought into this. Um, it's, I mean, it wasn't the agents weren't maybe as prevalent back then. They were around, clearly they were around, but it, it wasn't as important. I, I never, it's how you maybe see yourself. I never saw myself as that important that I felt I would, need an agent to conduct business for me. I looked at, you know, Alan Shearer's players of that level and thought I can understand why they maybe need people doing stuff for them because the level that they're, they're the clubs they're dealing with, the money they're talking about, they maybe need a bit of advice on that. But I, I didn't never saw myself in that way, but I did get advice. I had a solicitor, I had an accountant, I had someone to to do the talking for me or, or I had those conversations. So again, it's just some, maybe it's control. I always felt I'd rather want to speak to a club or if I'm going to leave a club or, or extend a contract I wanted it to be my decision. I didn't want people going in there, maybe speaking to clubs about the possibility of me moving on and, and putting my name out there. I, it, maybe it's a control thing. And also how I saw myself, I never saw myself as that important or that valuable that I would need an agent to, to conduct my business for me. So that was basically why I, and once you, once you get kind of, if you're doing that from a young age, it's something that I think then to say in your mid twenties to sort of, right, I need an, an agent now. It never really dawned on me. And I felt things went reasonably well. Whether I could have got more money or longer contracts, I don't know. Um, looking back, they, they probably could have negotiated that. But it is all about, again, how much control you want, how you see yourself, and maybe how valuable you are. And so, I, I kind of put that all, I took that all <clears throat> on board and, and thought, I'm, I'm better off just getting advice from people legally and, and kind of financially. But I, I thought, well, whether I stay or leave a club, surely that should be my decision. So that's why they, I didn't have that extra person or extra voice being involved in, in what was happening to me. So when, when you went from Everton to Wednesday, say, yes. how, how did the process work? How, who did Wednesday contact? Uh, well, I got, I'm not sure whether I should actually say, because it's not meant to happen, is it? Clubs aren't meant to make no, I've contact got, I, with I think, players I think we're while they're under contract with another club. But that clearly, it's not yeah, tapping think, up. It's just basically, there were probably conversations at certain levels 
not involving me to see whether there was an availability. And then basically it does boil down to whether the player would think about moving. So then I had certain conversations with people that it shouldn't, it shouldn't, that's not the way it should happen. But in, in life, it's always like that, isn't it? That you do have these conversations just, just to kind of sound you out. And that's, it went from there really. So I think it's a bit, it's re- bit late to suspend him now, isn't it? Yeah. I think yeah, it's re- it retrospective it is, it is two decade old suspension. I think it's reasonably it is, unlikely yes, that, yeah. that the FA don't launch an inter- inquiry into Andy Hinksless 1997 move to Sheffield Wednesday. Um, but you know, that's where these things start. But no, I just the, had a, a conversation. Well, yeah, yeah, Big Ron basically just just gave me a call, and we just had a chat from there. But again, I, I, re- I realised the clubs must have. He's just not going to ring me out of the blue. He must have again had contact with, say, Howard Kendall, whoever it might be. And clearly, once I then went back, to, Everton knew then all about it, so they knew that this was ongoing. But ultimately, mm. you need to speak to the because I just signed a new contract to Everton as well. So if you're going to get someone who's just signed a new four-year contract to leave you have to get that player on board. Because I said, well, unless everything's right, I, I've signed a new contract in good faith. You now mm. are telling me you want me to go. I'm quite happy to do it as long as everything's sorted out. So again, it was both Wednesday and Everton wanted it to happen, but they needed me to clearly say, yeah, it's okay. If it's not right for me, I've got a four-year contract here, so I'm going to stay here. Did Bid Ron, when he called you, did he introduce himself as Bid Ron? Uh, I think, don't think he said, I'm, hi, I'm Big Ron. I don't think Sam Allardyce would say hi. It's Big Sam. Or maybe I think Sam would. Allardyce definitely would. would. I don't think Big Ron. No, no, no. I don't think Ron did. I, I was a bit. It's like when you have these. When I spoke to Glenn Hoddle about you know, being called up for England, it's just so strange, isn't it? When people in the public, people you know, ring you up and say hi. It's Ron Atkinson here, and you're thinking, no, no, no. This is Gilles de Builder. This is uh, this is Gerald Stibon having a laugh. But it, and you think, yeah, yeah. You put the phone down, then they ring you back and say, no, it really is big. And they, so it's kind of weird because again, I've never really had the, the confidence to deal with people on that level like that. So when they do ring, and that's the only way they can do it. They've got to call you up and see whether you're interested, and then you go around for a big play of Kit Kats and you get the deal done. So it's uh, you know, once what, once we met face to face and the Kit Kats were out on the table, the the mound of Kit, it, it was a done deal. I'd, I'd have signed anything. You were d- dazzled by the by the silver foil. Did at what point did you get your lawyer involved? What happened in the end, I think I, I got my brother-in-law to do, because I felt a little bit awkward. Again, I've never been comfortable talking about this type of thing. Never been that confident to sit in front of chief executives or, or, or head coaches or whoever it might be that you're having these conversations with. So I got my brother-in-law basically to sit in all the conversations I had legally and financially. And then he basically took what I wanted to be said and, and said it at the other end. So he basically would have conducted, like we went to Tottenham. We spoke to Daniel Sugar and stuff. You know, Nigel went along and did, did those. Nigel's a great name for an agent, isn't it? He wasn't an agent. He was just my brother-in-law, but he can act for me. But Nigel, that's, you know, that's a, that's a trustworthy name, isn't it? Yeah, you, it yeah, you, yeah. You'd yeah, trust yeah. someone called Nigel, wouldn't you? Well, it, it, to talk about money. Except Farage. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you wouldn't get him to... to no, no, you wouldn't get him to negotiate anything, no. It doesn't work, does it? Does that seem to... Does I... I so I'm, I'm not as negative towards agents as... But don't we have I, to qualify agents? So do, do people just think, Raiola, that's an agent? There are lots and lots and lots of agents working at very different levels. So haven't we got to qualify yeah. well that's that's what the an first agent thing. is it's not just they're not all just this, this type of person but also even the ones at that level who get that reputation aren't nece- they're not necessarily u- like unilaterally bad they're not just a parasite on the game they even even mino and george mendez and jonathan barnett the kind of agency superstars provide a value to their players and they 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 wouldn't exist if they didn't there is a reason that players tend to have agents but i i it is interesting that not only is De Bruyne negotiated his contract through the through the Hinchcliffe route, but I think yeah. so at the moment I think Raheem Sterling is is between agents, and there is some some suggestion that Raheem thinks now that what he needs more than anything is 
kind of a team of people. He'll, he'll need someone to do his commercial stuff. He, he won't be able to do that himself just because th- th- there's a certain kind of, you need someone who can dedicate their time to that. Um, he might need like a comms person, a sort of PR consultant, and he'll need a lawyer and an accountant. But whether he feels now that he doesn't necessarily need an agent because he he's Raheem Sterling, mm-hmm. I think that that's that there's a little shift at the at the summit there at the very top. Phil Foden, from what I know, Phil's agent was was a friend of mine who he died a couple of weeks ago, um, and he was a lovely man, but he was a lawyer by trade. I think I don't. I'm not. I'm not 100 certain whether Phil, whether Phil had like a registered inter- intermediary who, who was separate. I don't think he did. I think Richard Green, who was his agent, um, who was his lawyer, was his registered intermediary. And his his background, Richard's background, was very much legal. It wasn't. It wasn't in the kind of you know he hadn't worked for a big agency. It wasn't in the commercial side. So I think from what from what I can gather, Phil's Phil Foden's kind of setup was that Richard covered his legal stuff, negotiated his contracts and stuff. And then I think he had an agency called Tentos who are, who are now doing a lot of stuff for a lot of players. I think he handled, they handled Phil Foden's or continue to handle Phil Foden's kind of commercial and marketing and PR stuff. And I, I wonder if that's actually a more likely model that the top players will follow in the future that you don't necessarily need if even, I mean, Haaland's an interesting example because does Erling Haaland need an a, an actual agent? Mino, Mino's obviously doing a good job by Erling Haaland. He's got like a, a pathway for him. They've got a plan. They seem to be sticking to it. Mino is good at like rustling up business and, and positioning his clients in the public eye. He's cutthroat and ruthless, all that stuff. But whether Erling Haaland at his level actually needs someone like Mino Raul, I'm not entirely sure, especially does his dad to a large extent will be able to kind of guide him through a little bit of the, the, the murky waters of football. What it strikes me that the, the very elite players need more than anything is a lawyer. That's that's the key requirement, and then separate people to handle. I think commercial you're, play, yeah, you're playing your playing contract. You need to know legally the ins and outs of the play. And you're saying this stuff, commercial marketing outside of, and that's changed massively over the last twenty years. Well, isn't it? There's there's so much work that you could be your actual playing. That's what De Bruyne, I presume, has negotiated his playing contract there might be stuff in there to do with his you know his image rights and everything else and he maybe have taken advice on that but he's still he's still dealt with that himself i presume just wanted to dive in before we we get too far down the the harland route of the conversation because the manchester city players that, that rory has just mentioned it kind of draws parallels a little bit to united's heyday and when they had a very settled squad and and that was the place to be i wonder whether there's a certain element of it depends not just on where you are in your career, but the club you are at and how settled you are with that club. Is it easy for De Bruyne and perhaps Sterling and maybe even Foden to deal with Manchester City because they want to be there. The club Mm -hmm. wants to keep them. They are not a selling club. And one presumes that because of the longevity of players at the club there is a fairly settled pay structure mm. one would imagine it's, it's it's straightforward for De Bruyne right my contract's coming to an end I want half a million a week on the next one City say oh that's a bit much 300,000 right we'll, we'll meet you halfway and shake hands I know it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it, it sounds similar to the... the you yeah, a hell of an agent, Steve. You get a deal done that quickly. That's extraordinary. Can you get me 400 grand a week? That's amazing. Are you not already on that with Sky? Blimey, you definitely Ooh. need representation. <laughs> you, you think back to United at, at the time <laughs> where they were absolutely dominant and, and there was a really set 
pace. A lot of the United players didn't have agents because you simply moved up through the gradients of pay as a consequence of your longevity, your seniority. Most of the players, as I understand it, knew where they were. The pay mm. structure didn't get broken pretty much for anybody. Maybe you needed an agent to oversee the commercial side of things or image rights. But a lot, you know, a lot was made at the time with Keane not having an agent. Skulls, they just had solicitors to dot yeah. the I's, cross the T's, didn't they? I think I think the PFA uh, did uh, did stuff for Gary Neville. I seem to, to recall, and maybe for one or two of the others. And I wonder whether we, we're now seeing, albeit with much larger sums of money involved, the same thing at Manchester City. Whereas for someone like Haaland, those superstar players maybe they do need an agent at the point in their career where they're not settled, they're moving around. They need somebody to maximise their, their potential earnings, to eke out which club is going to offer them the greatest opportunity to earn and win silverware. And that maybe a little bit later on down the line, if and when Haaland ends up at, say, a Manchester City where he's then going to spend the next 10 years, the involvement of an agent becomes less prevalent. That, that it seems to me that there are three obvious parts of an agent's job and their relationship with a player during a, an entire career. There'll be more, but there are three three obvious ones. One is renegotiating contracts with the existing club, which is something we've been talking about. The second is negotiating a transfer and a new contract with a new club. And the third is all the behind the scenes stuff, the, the, the player relationship stuff that we, we understand to have value, but is very rarely talked about. Those kind of um, the personal relationships, those being with them during tough times, that, that kind of personal level of support, which we can come on to later. But we've talked about renegotiating contracts and and why it's a little bit different to a transfer we, we've spoken about Erling Haaland the reason that he's he's different at the moment and the reason that he is being treated differently in terms of both the press coverage of him and also the fact that he does have an agent who is negotiating a potential move for him because we all know that he is imminently moving this summer or next that's different isn't it that's where an agent does come into it and that's where an agent can do some work because he is essentially the representative of the player where a player has no real voice publicly, as opposed to where he's able to have a voice in the contract negotiations for his existing club, he wouldn't necessarily be going around himself having conversations with those clubs for the reason that Chinch alluded to earlier. No, I think that's absolutely right. So that's where where agents come in. Steve, what Steve says is really interesting that he's right. You wonder whether at, at certain clubs at certain times, whether like I don't know whether did did like Xavi, Iniesta, and Busquets all have a like proper agents at the height of Barca's dominance? They they may or may not have done, but I'm not sure that they, they they'd have done a huge amount of work other than just sign, saying right, well, the amount you're offering on the new contract isn't enough. We want more. You need someone to go in and negotiate for you. That I think is totally understandable. I think for pretty much everybody else, what what agents do is is enable. They're a way for the players to assert their voice and their rights and their, their their value to an extent in a way that they probably couldn't do if, if it was just, young, you know, these are, these are young men and young women who aren't experienced in business at all. They're athletes. They're not, they need someone who can talk for them. And I think that. And it helps we, them also be a, be a good, remain a good cop so that the, the agent can be the bad cop. So for example, if Kevin yeah. does want a half a million a week, he doesn't want to have to say it to his club because it might make yeah, him look yeah. bad. It might sour the relationship. So the agent does it on your behalf. Agents who have a reputation anyway and don't necessarily have a relationship that is much to sour, they can 
do that. And, and that's what happens in our game. In, in, in the broadcasting game, it's the same, same principle. The, the, the agent can be the bad cop, so the relationship can be uh, as strong through that process with the, with the employer as it, as it was before. Yeah, although I think it's, it, that, that's part of it. I think it's also that, because you could just get a lawyer to do that. I think that, that the skill agents, agents have is an understanding of the marketplace, of potential opportunities, and they also provide a, a kind of point of contact that a lawyer wouldn't necessarily be able to do. Because it, if a lawyer was, was doing that, then they would effectively become an agent. They, they might have a legal background, but they would effectively become an agent. Because, like well, as Chinch alluded to, there is this very strange thing about tapping up that, that seems to be kind of drifting out of the game a little bit. But players need to know who's interested in them, what their options are. They have a right to, to do that. And they need some, they, they won't be kind of wanting to, um, to take a million phone calls the whole time from various clubs, off, you know, offering them a chance, establishing whether they're, in, they're interested. They need, you need someone who can effectively take those calls for you. Agents have that understanding of the marketplace. They operate in, in the kind of the gray space between clubs and players. And you need someone filling that role. And the, the really good agents will say to their clients, well, we have, you know, interest from Wolves and Southampton and Leicester, and we think that for your development, that at this point, Southampton is the best case, is the be- is the best bet. They're not paying as much money, but they, you know, agents can kind of map out. They can take in the information that that of who's interested. They they can have conversations with the current club of the player to establish what their plans are, what their you know how they envision the the player's role going forward. They can not just contract negotiations, but they can kind of smooth out issues. And then they can say to the player, look, this is this is your situation here, but you know, we think Southampton are the better bet for you. So we'll go there even though there's less money. And they kind of they provide a degree of cover for everybody. So I spoke to a a Colombian agent called Norman Capuozzo a few weeks ago, who um who helped do the Moises Caicedo deal to Brighton. And he was he was basically asked by Brighton to kind of to establish w- how Brighton went about buying what Moises Caicedo, and this is different. This is not. This is a bit that I of agency that I have. A, I have a little bit of a problem with, and I, I think it's not. In, this is where I, if I was the owner of a club, this is where I get annoyed with with my executives for free for kind of hiring in help to do it. But basically, Brighton didn't quite know who Caicedo's agent was. They didn't quite know who they had to deal with. They needed someone who could guide them through it. So they went to to, to Norman Capuazzo, who who kind of worked out, got all the relevant information worked out where, where they had to go. He spoke to Caicedo's club in Ecuador. He spoke to the agents. He spoke to the other agents who were claiming to be representing him. He kind of picked his way through the Merc. And because it was him doing it and not Brighton, Brighton had a degree of, what's the word? Like Plausible deniability. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. So it's not, it's, they, they weren't showing their hand because he wasn't going around saying, Brighton wants to sign you. He was going around saying, I have a client who wants to sign this player. What is the offer that, you know, what, what sort of money does he want? What's his interest in doing this? You know, where are the other options, blah, blah, blah. Clubs will also hire agents to sell their players because, again, they want that plausible deniability. They want someone out there in the marketplace saying, we've got, you know, you could potentially get this kid from Racing in Argentina without it being Racing going out and saying, we've got a player to sell, because that obviously means you lose your leverage. That, that within the, it's, a, it's, it's a deeply inefficient way of doing it, but within the, the, market, the football marketplace, you, you need someone who can operate 
in the shadows to an extent you need someone who you can say well actually they didn't have the mandate to do it anyway you need that level of mystery of mystery because otherwise someone somewhere is showing their hand too early and no one wants to do it it's all a very buying players is a really awkward dance as is selling players no one wants to be the first person to kind of to lean in for the kiss everyone wants to get their mate to do it so you know he fancies you and then but then not literally though you don't you don't hang on a minute i really like you but i'm not quite sure if you're going to kiss me so i'm going to get this guy to do it instead yeah no no it's it's, do you know what it's genuinely it's the same logic as my mate really fancies you and then if if the person the object of your affection says no not interested you know well actually that just 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 joke and didn't actually fancy in the first place There, there is a large element of that of nobody nobody wants to be the first to show their hand so you get the agents to kind of do it for you and as much as that feels to me like I don't quite understand why executives can't just have these conversations amongst themselves. I don't, the bit, the whole bit of agency that I don't quite get is why clubs have to get agents to sell players for them. And then you get these extra levels of complexity. And I said, it was, was a good example where you'll have different agents who've got different mandates to sell players in different countries, which just, to be honest, strikes me as a recipe for corruption the, and confusion. But the, to the clubs, it means that they protect the value of their asset rather than rather than being, able, being sort of running around saying, look, we, 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 we desperately want rid of this striker. We, we think he's useless. We just don't need him. Can you give us 7 million? Well, actually, you've just told me that you don't need him. So I'll give you 2 million because I think I can shortchange you. I thought Rory's going to draw an analogy with the, the journalism and protecting your sources. I wasn't expecting him to go high school disco shenanigans. <laughs> Football's much more like a high school disco than, than anyone has reasonable cause to expect. I would say, but that is, that is literally, that is the best parallel that you don't want to be, you don't want to get knocked back in person. Yeah. So you got Harry Kane out on the dance floor, Maurizio Pochettino is just, you know, leaning on the bar with a pint and that and gets his mate to go over to see whether Harry's interested in dancing with him. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is that any of Harry goes, no, 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 we didn't want you anyway. We didn't want you anyway. (laughs) Sorry. I I was, I was, I was actually sending him out to to get. Yeah. I was going to talk to that other guy over there. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you fancy a weekend in Paris? I, I, <laughs> I can that, sort of say, come on, come on. You've got to get to know them first. I mean, saying that early on in the relationship, somebody will think you're super weird, super clingy, going way too fast, and it'll all be over. So the, the way that Rory has just <laughs> described it, I can I can see where intermediaries have a benefit to clubs. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, and you can see, especially in the in the less well-known markets, why they need somebody to plot their way through that. Although that does seem in some ways to be doubling up on, on a scouting network. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not unproblematic, I would say. But you, I think you said at the top, Hugh, is it £270 million a year from Premier League clubs going out the door in this way? It, just, it seems extraordinary to me that, that the big clubs, who, as we've seen very recently can spend an awful lot of time trying to work out how they can make more money, how they can keep the smaller clubs in their place, how they can make the Champions League worse. Don't pull their resources to discover a way in which they can save themselves money. There must be another way. You know, why agents should be working for players. That's how it works in just about any other industry. It always strikes me as extraordinary that you're talking about for Erling Haaland to move club this summer or next is likely to cost the club 20 million quid 
just in terms of fees to his agent and his dad. Well, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Erling Haaland is not a mystery to the big clubs. The big clubs know how, how good he is. Yes, they might need to curry favour in terms of nego- you know, sit- getting to sit down around the table. But why is anybody making £20 million from the buying club for making them aware of a player that we are seeing banging in unbelievable goals three times a week. But you've got to bear in mind, Steve, that, that when Newcastle signed Johan Kabai, captain of the current French champions, that was considered an incredible coup for an unknown player. So never underestimate how little people, by, uh, English football teams, know about football. That, I think, is, is the big problem. And it's, you see what Guardiola said about Dortmund a couple of weeks ago, where he said it was a really unnecessary dig at Borussia Dortmund. I, 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 don't, I have no idea why he said it, unless there's some sort of problem that, for example, Man City are currently trying to negotiate with one of Borussia Dortmund's players and they're not impressed by, by the kind of the amount of money that, that the agents are demanding. That, that seems feasible to me. But Guardiola, kind of before the, the first side of the Champions League quarter, said that Dortmund had lots of talented young players, which is true. And that they spend a lot of money to get the players there, which is also true. They, you know, they're not averse to spending bid on a young player, Dortmund. And then he said, I, to me, unnecessarily belligerently, that they spend a lot of money to agents to get them there. And leaving aside quite why Pep felt the need to have to sort of go to war with Borussia Dortmund. What was really interesting about that is that it does raise this spectre of increasingly what matters in the transfer market is how much clubs are prepared to pay agents. And like Steve says, that's not really, that doesn't make any sense that Mino Raiola should get paid a percentage of Erling Haaland's salary. That's how agents get paid because they've negotiated the contract. They've identified the opportunity. They've done this, that, and the other. They've, they have a value. There's no, I'm not advocating for getting rid of agents, but quite why they need a bonus payment from the club for bringing that player to them, I don't know. Because that does suggest that the club are also paying the scouting department who are not doing their job. The scout, I mean, Harlan's a bit of a weird example, but even if Man City were signing a player from Sporting Lisbon, they will know about that player. They'll have made that decision as to whether they want that player based on their own research and their own work. They don't, I don't get what the club are paying the agent for in that. We're not, we're not talking about the clubs paying agents for every single transfer that goes through, are we? We're talking at players like Holland at the, at the top, top end. And is it because top, top end, top, top, top agent? Is it, is it because those, these agents, again, they have the luxury of being in control because they've got this valuable asset that four or five different clubs want and their clients are desirable, that they can say, well, for me to make this happen, you're going to have to pay me as well. Absolutely, the player should pay his agent because he's actually on his behalf, but... Do the clubs then feel obliged to do this? Because if they don't do it, some other club will do it. But the clubs have got to think, well, why are we, do- why are we doing this? It doesn't make any... We shouldn't have to be doing this. But is it because of the power of the agents and the, the desirability of the player that they have? That's what causes this to happen. But also uh, the, the rarity of the situation that I referred to earlier is, is also this situation. This is a rare situation where, a, where an agent is able to say, five big clubs of the stature of yours want my player so you're going to have to convince me yeah financially as part of that conversation that i should advise my clients to join your club is that is that morally acceptable so here's no. the, here's the question this is this this is the length to which 
clubs are apparently willing to go to get that asset. So as Rory said earlier, what the, the difference between an agent and a lawyer is that the agent understands the market forces. He understands he or she understands that there is a value to their asset, which supersedes any other normal transfer transaction, if you like. And so they are able to say, I am setting the terms because of how much you want my asset, my clients, and how big of an asset you think that, that, that player will be. So yes, it's rare, but they're doing it because they know they can. But then is this the kind of thing that gives all agents a bad name because of these mm -hmm. rarefied, skies atmosphere in which these few are operating in but, i don't but, know but how rare it is i would assume that if mina raul is getting paid for moving in harland that dave von dollop is getting paid for moving clarence for moving bedford jezzard <laughs> to doncaster they won't, won't won't be getting paid millions but i would would assume that if there are agents but being fees paid like by they, who being paid by, the, by well, the club all agents get paid by players. Yes, that's the, what I mean. The, so this the, is we're talking about the club. Yeah. No, but they will all. The, if if it's happening at the top level, it will be happening on a much smaller scale further yeah. down. The agents will be getting getting a fee for fee from the club for yes. smoothing through the deal, facilitating and, the transfer. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the reason we know that Rory's right about that is because that was something that came up uh, at, the, at the start of the original lockdown when there was no hope whatsoever of the the third and fourth tiers of English football returning and one of the outstanding debts that those clubs had that was being put off was their payments to agents that they were scheduled that they, they effectively had scheduled payments going to agents every six months and it had already been accepted that that you know that was going to have to be deferred and and the agents weren't going to be clamoring to get that money because they they knew how bad it would look mm. So, so that's that's the reason we know that Rory is right about that. But it, everything trickles down in terms of football's behaviours from the top down towards the bottom. So this is comes back to why I don't understand why the big clubs aren't doing something to try and stop this happening. Because if the big clubs stopped paying the super agents twenty million pounds per deal, then the smaller clubs wouldn't be having to, yeah, to pay the smaller Steve, agents ten thousand pounds a deal. They've all got to agree to do that. And how difficult is yeah. it to get the certainly the giant clubs, they'll say, Yeah, we'll we'll go along with you. We'll not pay oh and then they will to get the player that they yeah. Yeah, but, but they will actually follow that through and say, Yeah, it is right, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's stand together. But it, it's so difficult to get the giant any clubs to work. But, they, but they've demonstrated for the common, for the common good. But they've they don't demonstrated just, very recently how good they are at coming together to to better serve their collective cause, but they don't but they trust each other. About... Steve, that's the. Yeah, I know what you mean, but they, yeah. they, 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 they trust each other. I didn't mean to interrupt. Then sorry. They. I was interrupting they, Chinch, so you know. You it's know, a circle of interruption. They trust each other well enough to sit around a table and gang up on UEFA, because they're, they're, they all have the same interest there. That if they can gang up on UEFA, although even then, to be fair, in the negotiations for the new Champions League, there is a split between. Real, Barcelona, and some of the English clubs who were owned by Americans, and people like PSG and Juve and Bayern, who were all much more. The, the the whole debate over the commercial rights of the new Champions League is not. Then there is no. There is not a united front amongst the clubs. The they trust each other just about well enough to say this is what we want from UEFA. This is you are you are our antagonist. So we can all sit around and be on the same side against this one antagonist. It it strikes me as much harder, like Chinch says, for them to get together and say we're not going to pay agents fees anymore when all you need is one club to be like, yeah, yeah all right, whatever you do that. Yeah. Crack on. Uh, and then suddenly all the players are going to, to that club. And even, it might not even be 
a team that's amongst that elite. So it might be that the the cartel of of the big six and Barca and, and Real and Atleti and Juventus and Inter and Bayern and PSG or whoever, Dortmund, they might all agree not to pay agents fees, but Everton might not. Everton might be like, all right, if you, well, if you're not to pay agents fees, we will. And we'll, you, we'll, we'll see who gets the players. But then the agent, and I already thought this, and that, that, that sort of hammers down the point that if, if the deal is getting done because, who, because of which club is willing to pay the agent the most, then, then they're not serving their clients in the pos- best, best possible way. If a, if a player ends up at Everton when Real Madrid were interested, but, Everton, but, he, but he goes to Everton because they're willing to pay a £20 million agent fee, then how long that's before it, the players becomes start a moral, rebelling? It becomes a moral question then for the agent to say, what is doing the right thing by your client? Is it about sending them to yeah. a lesser club, in inverted commas, for more money or not? And that's, that's the moral issue, isn't it, here? And th- th- that is also the argument that agents will always make in support of their endeavours, is that they are always doing the best for their client because that is who, who ostensibly pays them, who pays them regularly. That's the relationship that they will have for longer than any relationship they might have with a club or over a transaction. If there is an occasion where that is not the case, then then the criticism perhaps is legitimate. But in everything that you always read in any public utterance by any agent, big or small, is that they are doing what they feel is best for their client and what their client has asked them to do. So are we saying that any criticism is valid when that stops being the case? I think that's when you'd notice that that play, but players to move agent. And I'm sure that if play, those players who feel their agents don't have their best interests at heart, they will move agents. There are, there, there are good and there are good and bad within agents. So there are there are even Mendes who has a really bad name, despite all those agent of the year awards that he wins. The you know people think of Mendes as being the kind of ultimate parasitic agent, but Mendes, by all accounts, when he takes a young player, will say, "This is my plan for you. This is where I see you in two years, four years, six years, eight years. If you train hard and you're dedicated and all that stuff, you keep on the right track. This is where I think we can we can get you." And then he'll kind of pick his that player's path through through the game and that's that's a really valuable resource that's a really someone you know having someone like that to to look at look after you is really important as long as they are there when you need them when you do have a problem with the manager when you do have a when you do feel that your your talent and your contribution is is being undervalued by your club if if it's just me you know sort of pitching up for lunch and saying right what what can you offer Erling Haaland I don't see why that is worth 20 million quid or whatever pick up the lunch tab yeah, maybe buy him lunch. That's right. Give him a night in a hotel. Give him a night, night in a nice hotel. You know, that's fine. Do his laundry for him. I mean, four star. Don't... We're talking like Holiday Inn Max, though. Holiday Inn Express. Oh, that's fine. Right, okay. Because of the, the free um... breakfast. Fair enough. Yeah, the breakfast? Bre- bre- or not? Bre- breakfast, the, yeah. The yeah. breakfast is cracking at Holiday Inn Express. So I think that there, there are agents, <laughs> there, are, there, there are times when agents provide value. That, that value is, is distorted at the very top end because it seems to have just become this thing where we've got all this money to spend. We want the player, so we'll give the money to the agent. That's the condition of the deal. That's be- that is still better than the money just sitting in, in billionaires' pockets. Like if, that's money, if that money's going to come in, it might as well be redistributed a little bit. I, I don't get why the clubs continue to do it when, when there is so little value that they are getting from, from those deals. That's the mystifying bit to me. That's not to say that all agents are providing no service, just mostly they, a lot of them do provide a service and a lot of them do contribute to their players yeah. development and growth the the flip side of the of the kind of vulture agents who swoop in i won't mention names but there's a couple in england who basically swoop in and convince players to leave their 
their current agent because they can get a deal done. They get the deal done, the players are happy, and then the agents just disappear. They just, they're not, the really good agents will have people who work for them who, like lower level junior agents who look after a player on a day-to-day basis and take care of, take care of them effectively. And they're, 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 they're the sort of immediate point of contact. There are several agents out there who do not operate like that. They get the deal done and then they, they basically leave the player to fend for themselves. And that's, that's where you then reach a sort of moral issue is these people, those people are parasites. Yeah. You, the value this is not hammering agents in entirely because absolutely you can see their value to the players. So the issue really seems to mm. be is to why it's not just the players paying them and, and why the clubs are allowing themselves to have rings run around them by people who have managed despite more meager resources to seemingly be better at scouting, recruitment, long-term planning, negotiating, communicating. Mm. I, if I was the owner of a football club, I would embar- I'd be embarrassed that we'd got into a situation where there wasn't somebody or a team of people working within the club who weren't better at a lot of those things yeah. than an agent or an agency was. It's interesting that you mentioned George Mendes there, there, Rory, because he is the kind of super agent, uh, a moniker I imagine he encourages, um, that, that yes, he is, he is pl- plotting out, as you mentioned, a player pathway, but he's also doing it because he has his own team of scouts and data analysts. And, and one of the aspects of Kevin De Bruyne's um, renegotiation was that he was able to provide his own analytics to highlight the value that he had to Manchester City, which had value then in, in renegotiating, getting the pay rise that he eventually did. Th- these agencies now have these teams of people that are able to provide the data, the analysis to their own players that they have in their stable already, or potentially as a recruitment tool for those for those players to say, look, we can provide you with all this information. This is the kind of stuff that we can help you to understand where you might be in two, four, six, uh, eight years. And, and the value of that agent that that below that super agent, that the everyday agent, if you like, whether it's within that same company or not, is one that a lot of players talk about. It's also what a lot of those super agents talk about, the value of being with their large organizations. And Chinch, you didn't have an agent. So I just wanted to ask, given all the, all the conversations we've had, over the course of the years that we've been doing this about the difficulties that you sometimes face with self-esteem and and issues that perhaps might have been helped by having that person in your life who you inherently trusted, felt was on your side, somebody who could perhaps help you through those times where others didn't necessarily have the same input. I I, I suppose so. Again, I think trust is a a huge part of it because again I presume the level that I would have been operating at is not kind of Erling Haaland's kind of level so you, you, you again you can't in with like maybe statement of the day. yeah I, I don't would I have been Hang that a level? we're talking no, about no I'd have been a level down I'd have been a level down don't that. ruin it for him <laughs> let's build him up yes thank you, thank you I'm building myself up I'm seeing myself you know just below Erling Haaland um so again you've got to think how desirable would I have been as a client probably not hugely important to to agents but but if you have met someone again it would have been about trust and about saying well they have an obligation as your agent as a representative is working for you so you do have to have that con- i presume that is what happens and that is i would say as important to a player having that contact and understanding and trust with somebody who's slightly outside of the world that they live in but can help them enormously and is acting genuinely in their best interests i think from a mental health point of view as well would be hugely important so again the agents hopefully they do 
um, behave like that because it is vitally important for their clients that they behave. It's not just about the team you play for, the money that you earn. It's about the life that you live and how comfortable you are. And when problems come along, it might be with kids, with marriage. It, I'm sure, I'm, do they get involved in, in their lives of their clients? which you would think, well, you're just paying me to do a certain job. But hopefully a friendship should build up there, an understanding should build that you actually can help each other in many ways. It might be the agent might need a little bit of help from the player. And it's a two-way street. Once you have that bond, then it can be incredibly strong. And that's what it should be. It should be a real bond between the player and the agent. Because you mentioned about Joe Royal and Willie, Willie Donachie essentially opening your eyes to a lot of things that, that, that had they had been closed to, but also giving you that self-esteem that had been lacking yes. because of those who were around you prior to that. So had you had somebody who was saying, look, look, look at the fact that Joe Royal told you what you were good at. He showed you what you were good at and he encouraged you to do that. If you had had somebody on your side who wasn't involved with yes. the club yeah. saying, look, no, Chinch, you are, you are incredibly talented footballer. You're not quite Erling Haaland, but you're, you know, you're getting there. Not quite, and, not quite, but not you're quite certainly Erling very Holland. close. But if, mm. if you had somebody prior to Joe Royal and Willie Donachie arriving at Everton doing that for you, there might have yeah. been some, I don't know, happier times just prior to that. Yeah, it's whether, whether that person was out there or whether I was willing to actually, yeah, look and say somebody could be involved that would help you. But, but again, if you see yourself in a, in a certain light, you, you don't think, well, that's naturally what I would do because you don't, you don't see that help is out there when you're 18, 19 years old. It's very difficult. You know, you don't have that maturity to say, well, yes, I can see the benefit of maybe having an agent, not just in terms of finances and the legalities of contracts. It's actually someone who can help me with all the problems. You just tend to keep it all in house. I think a lot of men do that. A lot of players do that. A lot of people in life do that. So again, yes, it would have been massively helpful to have somebody, but with Joe and Willie, it took, it wasn't just a day and basically, oh, right, the penny drops. I realized I'm, I can do this and I can do more than I've, I thought I could. It took time, months and months and months of constant work, talking and working on the training. bit. So it does take a lot of time. As I said, that bond has to grow. The trust has to be there because a lot of people do talk a good game in many areas of life and say, I can do all this for you. I can help you with this, that and the other. And actually 90% of the time, it doesn't actually work out that way. So I think players are a little bit worried because they don't know the areas that an agent is working in. They don't want to seem foolish. So I think they accept a lot of stuff that is kind of talked about and they just presume that agents are acting in their best interest. So I do think you get need to get to, to know that person, not just the job that they're doing, the person that you're dealing with and build up that trust. And absolutely would have helped me enormously, but it, whether that was a failing in me, not looking for somebody, but I don't think I was in a place where I would, even now I, I don't even look and say, well, I feel, I'm, I'm so good at what I do that I would could maybe have some help or, or, you know, I can kind of promote myself in other areas. I've never seen myself like that as a player or as in, in broadcasting. So I think that's, again, that's down to my personality. And a lot of players, I think, maybe are like that as well. No matter how good they are on the pitch, they maybe have that again. They, they, they are a little bit worried about being seen to be a bit foolish in the wider world. To be fair, I think when, when Chinch was playing, I don't know how much of that kind of, what's the word? It's a type of care pastoral pastoral that's it that pastoral care wasn't I don't think agents provided that I I, I can't see Eric Hall having like a, a a part of his business it was devoted to like player psychological problems I think they were yeah but players players didn't talk about issues yeah. that they were having they, they just it, the world wasn't like that and maybe that's what's changing for, for maybe the modern player but it's certainly yeah players didn't talk about any because they didn't want to look foolish even in the dressing room let alone to people on the outside one of the things about agency that has changed a lot and maybe isn't quite as um, recognised as it maybe should be is that a lot of agencies are now moving more from we can do you deals, we can do you. So they've all dropped their commercial departments, the big agencies. They've all got, they'll all have 
legal people, they'll, they'll have accountants, they'll have people who do the commercial stuff, the image rights stuff, all that stuff. But increasingly, I think they're recognising, particularly at the top level, or they're not exclusively at the kind of Harland level below that, they're recognising that players, they need to provide not only that kind of pastoral care for players, but that they need to give the play to give more than just we can do you deals and sign your contracts. So if you look at Rock Nation, who've made a, a big sort of move into football, a lot of their they're not, I don't know if they're if they're representing players fully yet, but they're they're they've certainly signed up kind of a load of clients, including Kevin De Bruyne. So whether they they maybe will have been involved in some way in De Bruyne's negotiations, I'm sure they were. It might just have been his commercial rights or his his image stuff, but they will have been involved. They've got Lukaku, De Bruyne, Marcus Rashford, all connected to them in some way, plus plenty of others. But a lot of their pitch is that they can help fulfil the players' ambitions in a non-footballing sense. So if if you have a, a project that you want to run charitably, as Marcus Rashford has done, Rock Nation will help you with that. If you have a business idea, Rock Nation will help you with that. And Gary Neville needed that for his pylons. Exactly. If Gary Neville, Neville had had that for his stay electric, car, stay electric car and his pylon, then he'd have been flying, literally. Um, the... <laughs> Would it have helped him avoid the pylon he was on the receiving end in Valencia? It may well have done. Oh, nice but one, Steve. There's a German agent, so Kai Havertz's agent is a friend of mine, and they, they've just, their firm, I forget the name of their firm, but they've just amalgamated with another another agency to form a thing called Roof in Germany, which now represents quite a lot of, of relatively big-name German players and or players who've experienced coming through either Germany or Austria. Um, and again, part of their pitch is, is we can help you with social stuff. Like we, not social media, but kind of we, if we can help you do the things you want to do with your money that will help society. We will help you build businesses. We will help you build brands. That stuff now is where agencies are going, I think, rather than I think to an extent the Mino type of agent is slightly old-fashioned. That he's he is in that kind of hereditary line from 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 Eric Hall. He's I mean he's Dutch, but he's he's monster monster. I think a lot of agencies now are a lot more sophisticated than that and are very much like, well, look, moving the players around the market is one thing we do, but we to retain clients, we have to do a lot more than that because these are I can't remember was it Fergie who said that they're all they're all busy someone like Ferdi or Vendor in a Premier League changing room, you've got 25 businesses and you need to treat them as such. And I think agencies have, have recognised that and are now reflecting that in terms of the services they offer. Yeah, so with, the, with the, the care of players, maybe that's why we're seeing a lot of kind of fathers involved with their sons' careers as well. You do seem to, there's a lot of connection. Again, it's not just in terms of the, um, the ins and outs of their contracts, it's actually that pastoral care, that family care, that the, the fathers are maybe, again, just overseeing along with agents as well to make sure that they're, their sons as well as footballers are being well looked after. And, and there are there are other agents that we've kind of become familiar with through the telling of stories, you know, in LA for movie stars and stuff. They always have a team, don't they? They have an accountant, mm. they have a manager, they have an agent, they, they, they have all sorts. So it's becoming a little bit more like that. And, 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 and as nobody, you say, like 25 businesses, they, they, they need a team operating their business. And this, this, is a, this seems like a really obvious point to make. And, and it's strange how often you have to kind of draw the parallel when it should be so natural. But nobody has a pop at Tom Cruise for having an agent. Like no one's having a go at, at I'm, I'm, I presume movie studios will pay agents to get their, you know, to get strips to their stars or whatever. Football, that fo- footballers are entertainers. That that is how they should be treated. And in the same way as no one, no one is suggesting that Orlando Bloom takes a pay cut because of the pandemic. I'm not quite sure why we don't treat footballers 
Steve's Steve tutting like he's not a fan <laughs> of Orlando Blue. I think, I think Orlando Blue might have taken a, a pay cut on account of him not doing very much very good. Uh, but we uh, perhaps we perhaps we will uh, revisit this when the the, the, the much vaunted FIFA regulations, new regulations on 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 agents come in. I, I know a lot of agents don't particularly uh, appreciate what they might do to the game. Um, and also, we haven't really mentioned how they affect journalism as well. But we have probably in times gone past when we've talked about uh, journalism per se. But it is now time for never mind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story! This is Nandy tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved. Well, it wasn't the story I was going to tell, but it was the, the mention earlier of Forest Green Rovers that kind of jogged my memory of a of an absolutely corking League Two game that I did there. It, it was a big one, Forest Green Rovers against Swindon. It was one everyone at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone was talking about it. They needed a big name co-coms on that. So get Chin Chin. And uh, so we, we got down there because obviously it's a big story with Forest Green, how they run the club and it's you know the eco side of it, the vegan side of it. So we got down there early and we... We had a load of food and everything, and it was amazing. The food was great. Some of the guys weren't keen on, they didn't even try the food. They just thought it's horrible without even trying it, which was ridiculous, but it was more food for me. So I enjoyed that. Uh, the food was excellent. So again, we, we, do, we did a few interviews. And again, you're flagging up the, the, the difference that this, how this club is run and the philosophy and the, and the food and the power supply and all this type of stuff. But one of the, the, main, what we, one of the main thrusts that we wanted was about the... Um, the electric kind of robot lawnmower that they had, which again was powered. It wasn't kind of full of petrol or that type of stuff, but it was run by GPS. And apparently the groundsman didn't have to physically be there to work it. He could work it off an app on his phone and it would kind of just, you know, like these, these hoovers and stuff that you see, these, these grass cutting things that just kind of, bat, and it basically cut the grass, but in a really world friendly way. So, we, we're setting this this news cross up, the pre-match interview. And I said, well, we can talk about the teams and the games, but, the, you know, what aspect can we talk Oh, this, 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 this must be. There can't be many of these things knocking about the country, this, this robot lawnmower. And so we start to do the interview, and we're expecting what we planned was for the lawnmower to kind of be drifting across in the background behind us. So as we conducted the interview and talk about Forest Green, I'm thinking, I can smell petrol. What is that? It smells like petrol. And then in the background behind us, there's a guy with a, just a regular lawnmower cutting the lawn. So we sort of cutting the lawn, cutting the pitch. So we finish off with the interview talking about again, but we, we couldn't actually talk about the robot lawnmower because it, it wasn't in the shot. It was this just kind of standard, normal, seemingly petrol lawnmower. So at the end of the interview, we, we go over to the groundsman and stuff and say, what, what's the story with, you know, we're going to flag up this amazing bit of technology that you've got. Oh, no, it's bust. <laughs> What? It, oh, it won't respond. It's just, I don't know, something's going on. We can't use it. And I said, what? I, now, I, I'm, I'm here to be corrected. You know, Forest Green Rose, their fans and Dale Vince might be very angry. It might have been, can you get some kind of diesel or petrol that is world friendly or is petrol, petrol and diesel, diesel? It smelt like they just said, oh, sod all that good stuff. We're just going to have to get the grass to cut. We're going to have to use a normal lawnmower here. Or would they have had some fancy kind of diesel or petrol to go in that lawnmower? But the whole thrust, the game was terrible. I think Swindon won 1-0. So the, the major thing to come out of us going there to cover the game was the robot lawnmower. And he just kind of said, nah, it's busted. It's not working at the moment. So, But I'm going to, did they use, which would be shocking if they did, a petrol lawnmower to step in for the robot GPS lawnmower? I need to find out the answer to this, but it, it certainly smelt like it was. 
slightly upset you did a lawnmower story just as our manscape reads come to an end but still thank you very oh. much indeed keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to steve rory and andy and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed seeing as my superstore recommendation works so well by the way uh, kate and i watched palm springs on prime uh the other night it's really good i'd recommend that as well if we're doing what's a, it about it's a it's a it's like a modern take on groundhog day it's a film Oh, okay. right. no, I think I'll leave it if you don't mind. Do you know, are, you, are, you, are you a bit like Michael Owen? You don't like watching What's, films. I'm watching. I'm watching Bosch at the moment. Ah, yes. Oh, well, Steve Hieronymus. recommended that to me. Is it, about, is it about Hieronymus or is it about the power tools? It's about a bit of everything actually in there. There's some serial killers with power tools in there. But it's. Uh, I've read all the books you see, and again, it's much better than the Tom Cruise Jack Reacher. The guy they've got playing Bosch is a good Bosch. Titus Velova. Titus Welliver, hell of a name, well of an actor, but it's uh, it's good. It is good, and it's 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 nicely developed over the four seasons so far. And I've got two to go, but yeah, all this Superstore, Palm Springs, eh, it's a bit you, isn't it? It's not really me.